You're listening to A Book at Breakfast with Mark Charlesworth and Chris Newton. Ford, said Arthur, would you please tell me what the hell is going on? Drink up, said Ford. You've got three pints to get through. Three pints, said Arthur, at lunchtime. The man next to Ford grinned and nodded happily. Ford ignored him. He said, time is an illusion, lunchtime doubly so. Very deep, said Arthur. You should send that into the Reader's Digest. They've got a page for people like you. Drink up. Why three pints all of a sudden? Muscle relaxant, you'll need it. Muscle relaxant? Muscle relaxant. Arthur stared into his beer. Did I do something wrong today, he said. Or has the world always been like this and I've been too wrapped up in myself to notice? All right, said Ford. I'll try to explain. How long have we known each other? How long? Arthur thought. Uh, about five years, maybe six, he said. Most of it seemed to make some kind of sense at the time. All right, said Ford. How would you react if I said that I'm not from Guildford, after all, but from a small planet somewhere in the vicinity of Beetlejuice? Arthur shrugged in a so-so sort of way. I don't know, he said, taking a pull of beer. Why? Do you think it's the sort of thing you're likely to say? Ford gave up. It really wasn't worth bothering at the moment. What with the world being about to end? He just said, drink up. He added, perfectly factually, the world's about to end. That was, of course, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. That's the book. And today, the breakfast is an all-day breakfast. Um, strictly speaking, this is a book at brunch. Although breakfast, you know, breakfast time is an illusion. Um, <laughs> just as much as lunchtime. Uh, it, it's a book at brunch because I'm having three pints at lunchtime. Because it's my birthday, after all. And I'll need them for the muscle relaxant. So that's, that's the brunch. What's the... What, what, oh, God, no. <laughs> that's, the, that's the three pints. What's the breakfast? Or is it brunch? What's the meal we're eating? <laughs> that was uh, somewhat convoluted mm. there, Chris. Gonna leave that all in. I'm not even saying um, drinking. <laughs> um, it's a sort of doctored thry-up. So we've got sausages, Linda McCartney, of course. Baked beans. Uh, fried mushrooms with a little bit of black pepper and thyme. Mm. Let me know what you think of the thyme. I've already eaten um, them. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Greedy guts. Uh, we've got some fake bacon, uh, appropriately enough, called This Isn't Bacon. And it isn't, but it is as well. Work that one out. I don't know if they've just been endorsing these people and giving them product placement, but I feel less guilty about name-dropping This Isn't Bacon <laughs> and Linda McCartney yeah. than I might do, say... Cola or Morrison's or McDonald's. The same brand do sausages uh, and they're called This Isn't Pork Sausages. And that offends me grammatically. Yes, I was going to say it doesn't really so, work, does it? This is a show about literature, yeah. after all. So it's a good job they're not our sponsor. Mm. Well, <laughs> yes. This isn't mm. a book at breakfast. That <laughs> <laughs> said, as you say, strictly speaking, it isn't a breakfast because we also have, in addition to the things I've mentioned, chips. It's a brunch. For vegans. <laughs> um, long-term listeners, if there are any, or, or if there are any listeners generally, <laughs> might remember in our very first episode, we were supposed to be talking about Adrian Mole, but we got sidetracked by wondering about the local Chinese chip shop. And, and then we, we since fell in love with Lee's Chippy. Mm. So now, almost halfway through our first season, 
we're celebrating with basically a fry up and chips from Lee's <laughs> Chippy. Perfect. Mm. It's a very healthy meal as well. Anyone, well, I've been full of the cold this week, as you might be able to tell from my voice. Perhaps not at this moment, because at this moment my voice is obscured by chewing. But later in the episode, it'll be obscured by perhaps uh, post-coldiness. So uh, here's hoping that you don't hear a slight uh, nasal drip like a drifting tap. Just, to just, say, just say that you're doing Vogue on poetry. Oh, well, yes, exactly, yeah. That was a nice tie and I like that. Yeah. So, on the subject of allergic bees, mm. what's your hitchhiker's origin story? Uh, you, next. <laughs> <laughs> was it really? Uh, yeah, um, well, I'd always been aware of it, and... I guess my Hitchhiker's origin story is actually Radiohead. Oh, Paranoid Android. Yeah, when the song Paranoid Android came out, I remember asking my mum, who oh. probably gets to mention all of these episodes, um, what Paranoid Android meant. <laughs> and she told me it was a reference to uh, a robot called <laughs> Marvin mm. in a book called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And she told me it was a silly book and little more else about it <laughs> and because she said it was a silly book and I, as an 11 year old I only liked re- reading very <laughs> serious books like encyclopedias and atlases and books did, about trains uh, well, it's funny you know I did didn't you like the, the encyclopedia galactica <laughs> mm. oh I loved it um, so I didn't really speculate more about what the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy was other than some years later but still before I'd got into Hitchhikers. I got into Pink Floyd when I was about 14. Oh. And their last album, The Division Bell, which I always thought was a great title, that title was actually come up with by Douglas Adams. And I remember reading I that. I never knew that. Did you know? No. Mm. Wow. Yeah, Douglas Adams was a friend of David Gilmore. Mm. And he came up with the title for it. Which somehow kind of unites the two in my head now. I've been listening yeah. to The Division Bell a lot whilst revisiting the first wow. Hitchhiker's book. So it's sort of that these two bands that I really liked and respected, Radiohead and Pink Floyd, both seem to have a Douglas Adams connection, however disparate, made me want to investigate. But it wasn't until we were at college and you bought the, the TV series on VHS from HMV. I thought we bought it. Collectively, together, we shared it, it. Oh. because it was it was a double VHS. Yes, it was one of those chunky ones. Yeah, and they were expensive. Mm. Like uh, anyone who listened to our episode on Rose will uh, remember my childhood dismay at not being able to get the uh, Genesis of the Daleks, Sontar, and Experiment double VHS because mm. they're about twenty five quid. It wasn't that expensive, but I'm pretty sure we went halves on it and mm. had it like mm. alternating weeks. Oh. <laughs> I still got the sleeve mm. at home. Well, I actually saw the TV series before I read the book. Um, But I guess we'll talk more about that later. I'm not going to say too much more about the TV series. I guess now it's brought us on to um, my origin story of actually reading the book was I liked the TV series Mm. and then I read the book. Yeah, well, same. So thank you for introducing (laughs) me to it. Oh, so you saw the TV series before the book as well. Yeah, um, again, it it, it was my mum. Funnily, seemingly like, Apropos of nothing, came back from the library one day because in the past, dear listener, uh, I think we've mentioned before, you could rent VHS tapes from the library. Um, And yes, she just came home with that double VHS and said, oh, you'll love this. How old were you? I was about 12 Mm, and I did. That's Um, a good age. 
and but I had to be discovering things. Yeah, I'd never heard of it, mm. and um, even though <laughs> I'd I'd bought uh, Pirate Planet, which is a Doctor Who episode written by Douglas Adams. Are we from... talking about Doctor Who? We don't really like Doctor Who. It's... Unfortunately, it's inevitable because Douglas Adams was involved with it. Well, we'll skirt around it. We'll get oh, we'll get past right, it as okay. soon as we can. I'm sorry, Fleming show. I know. Mm. Um, just wait till we get onto the Cricket Men. <laughs> um. Well, I bought Doctor Who and the Pirate Planet. No, that's not what it's called. <laughs> it was just called the Pirate Planet. Um, at Preston Market, there was a store where they just sell VHS tapes with things that people that had taped off the telly. And I bought a load of Doctor Who ones. Uh, but it was always a bit of a lottery because sometimes you'd buy the tape, but you'd put it in the VHS player and it would just be snow. <laughs> and Pirate Planet never played. And, oh. and the image was sort of distorted and was sort of like phasing out of focus. And I just got a bit of a, a pirate with, with a sort of cybernetic eye patch and a robot parrot. And then it fizzled out into nothingness again. So that was my only knowledge of Douglas Adams. And Have you seen it since? Yes. I've, oh, read, right, okay. I've read the, the Target novelization. Oh, okay. You mm. bought it for my birthday last year. Yes, I did. <laughs> Appropriately um, enough. And, uh, exactly 12 months ago. Oh, yeah, of course. Mm. Well, I've had uh, a quarter of a pint. <laughs> more, more like half of a pint. Mm. I need to work quickly, don't I? The mm. world's about to end, sorry. <laughs> um, but yeah, my mum bought me this tape and just said, you'll love it. And I, I didn't have any preconceptions. And it's quite a, a sensible cover, really. It's just Ford and Arthur, and Arthur's in his dressing gown. And, and it's Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And I thought, oh, maybe it's a documentary about space. <laughs> I had no idea what to expect. And I loved it so much, like from the very first second with the, you know, the countdown to the dest- destruction of Earth that I remember I watched the first episode and then I went to my nan's later, uh, well, maybe the next day. And instead of watching episode two, I rewound it and rewatched episode <laughs> one because it was just so brilliant. But also there's so much to take in because you sort of establish to Arthur and the world and they go to the pub and his house is about to be you know, demolished and, and then the Earth is blown up and then everything is sort of re established afresh and then suddenly the story almost starts again and with all the, the graphics and yeah uh, and I just it was really was love at first sight it was it my mum was right <laughs> it was exactly my cup of tea I just absolutely loved it um, and again we'll, so we'll talk more about the TV series later but um, I don't know when I became aware there was a book now obviously just in case anybody listening has never read seen or heard the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy um, it actually began life as a radio play, although I'm mm, sure you know that. That's a point. Um, which I didn't hear for years, because again, this was pre, pre-YouTube, and you, you probably could buy it on vinyl somewhere, but not anywhere near us. So I'm I was sure up... you could get it on CD. Could you? Mm. Yeah, I'd never seen it. Um, I didn't listen to it for years and years and years. But um, yeah, so I, I, was, I sort of watched the TV series to death, Um but it wasn't till I was about 17 that I actually read them. And I must have known that there were books. But I was actually, uh, I was in Hay on Wye, which for anyone who doesn't know, Hay on Wye is a, a gorgeous little town in Wales, which is basically, they have a, a literary festival there, but it's basically a town of bookshops. Every other shop in Hay on Wye is, is, a, is a little secondhand bookshop. It's, and I've never been. You've never been? No. Oh my God. Um, it, it's kind of paradise, <laughs> really. Um, and I was there on holiday once uh, with a friend at the time who did not like Hitchhiker's Guide at all. And there's a moment in Peep Show that always really tickles me because it reminds me of this holiday. It's where Mark and Jeremy are arguing about something. I can't remember what exactly, but um, uh, Jeremy says, so you've got to prepare yourself. 
for, for Mad Max. And Mark says, mm, I don't know if you remember, yes. he said, Mad Max is not necessarily going to happen, Jeremy. And Jeremy sort of comes back with, this isn't Hitchhiker's Guide, where you just wander around in your dressing gown having a nice cup of tea. So I was with this friend who coincidentally loved Mad Max and anything sort of <laughs> grim and dystopian. And I was in this little shop and I found... Um, the first four books in the trilogy. Yes, the first four books in the trilogy. Uh, first, I mean, bad quality, but first editions too. Mm. Uh, really cheap. And I bought them all and spent the entire holiday just, you know, when you're reading and laughing out loud mm. and quoting to anyone in my vicinity, uh, much to the annoyance of my f- friend at the time who hated Hitchhiker's Guide. Had he seen it or read it? Or had oh, he just ass- was I, it an assumed I hatred? think it was an assumption, but... Mm. Uh, uh, but yeah, so that was, yeah, Hey on Why, I have to thank. And I wasn't like, I didn't go looking for it. I just found them. There was a pile of, of all the books and I, I bought them immediately. And it was just, I felt like I'd found something. I mean, I knew I loved it as a property, but as soon as I opened that first page and, and you know, most of the text is, is dialogue that I'd, I'd heard uh, in the episode. But just, I don't know, seeing those words on paper about, you know, the... Um, uh, insignificant little blue-green planet, uh, uh, which has, or rather had, a problem, which was this. Most of the people living on it were unhappy for pretty much all of the time. Many solutions were suggested for this problem, but most of these were largely concerned with the movements of small green pieces of paper, which is odd, because on the whole, it wasn't the small green pieces of paper that were unhappy. And I thought, yes, this is... This is special. This is a book. I knew from that first page, I'm going to be rereading this for the rest of my life. I wonder how long that was after we bought the video. Because I, in my memory, we bought the video and then I bought a, a bumper edition of all the books mm. and pretty much dived straight in. It must have been around the same time then. Yeah, it probably was. I was, was. either 16 mm. or 17. Mm. I can't probably 16, actually, come mm. to think of it. I'm still uh, enjoying my breakfast, so don't expect any weighty contributions from me in the next five minutes or so. You're going to have to do all the legwork. <laughs> well, that's all right. Um, I'm a slow eater, listeners. But I'm uh, a slow everything. I've also, in preparation for this, uh, I read Don't Panic, uh, Douglas Adams and the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Neil Gaiman, which was, mm. so, unless you count the Duran Duran... Those are some top content. Carry on. <laughs> Unless you count the Duran Duran biography that, that nobody talks about. Uh, this was sort of Neil Gaiman's first official book. Did he wrote a Duran Duran biography? Yeah. I didn't know that. Um, wow. Yeah, I don't think you're supposed to know. It's, it's a closely <laughs> guarded secret. But um, <laughs> You'd think he'd be notorious for it. Oh, that was good. Uh, but I was, I, was, I was so, you know, enamoured with Hitchhikers from first reading it well, and, and watching it. But I, especially as a teenager and a teenage student reading it thinking this is this isn't just sci-fi this isn't just comedy this is a philosophy book and for a long time i thought douglas adams was probably the cleverest person in the <laughs> yes. world well i didn't realize he was quite young when he wrote it he was mm. late 20s wow is that i find that slightly mind-boggling mm. how could you get to be so clever by that age not just but, to be a philosopher but also to satire philosophers yeah. well, there was a as wonder- part of it yeah. I, mm. I don't know if you listened to the, the BBC Book Club uh, Douglas Adams interview. Mm. Mm. I actually, I nodded off. Mm. <laughs> it was very late. When it, mm. But I listened to at least the first half of it. And he, I thought it was wonderful. No, that, the second half's brilliant. You're missing out there. <laughs> Wait, pause the podcast. Mm. to come back. Uh, the host asked him uh, about parodying 
science fiction and he said oh i'm not parodying i'm not i'm not sending up sci-fi i'm sending up everything else and mm. i'm using sci-fi as the vehicle to do it with and i thought that was that was brilliant and and i yeah i remember just thinking douglas Adams was so clever and yet there's a wonderful bit uh in in this book you know a lot of it's just com- conversations with with douglas uh and he talks about the fact that he's not a genius uh and, and you know and i wonder how much of of Mar- how much of douglas adams is in marvin He's possibly my favourite character in the book. He says he's based on someone else, but I can't help but wonder because I know he says he sometimes he allows himself to think that he's incredibly bright, but other times thinks he's he's very dim. Uh, but he said uh, he talks about uh, the most dangerous thing a person can do is believe their own publicity, uh, and he's talking about people he looks up to and admires, and he uses John Cleese as an example. It took me a long time to be able to perceive him as an ordinary human being. Uh, he says. I know how very easy it is to look at somebody who is actually a perfectly normal human being um, who just happens to have a particular talent, um, an ability or facility that puts them into the limelight and to see them as some sort of very elevated and extraordinary person, which I think they're not. I think you do yourself a favour if you try not to expose yourself too much to people who are going to tell you you're God's gift to the human race, which I found very interesting because of a lot of conversations we have at the moment, not necessarily on this podcast, but about separating the art from the artist. And mm. when people I know, become problematic or say or do things that seem to contradict the work. And I just love that idea, how grounded he was, that you know, just because somebody is good at something, it doesn't make them an inherently mm. better person. Mm. And I think that just, it says a lot about, at the risk of me now doing that and putting Douglas Adams on a pedestal, I think he really <laughs> understood human beings and human nature. And I think that the thing that really, we've mentioned this loads when we talk about the Hitchhiker's Guide, is that Douglas Adams invented Wikipedia. Mm. <laughs> the idea that you'd have this digital book in your pocket at all times. A smartphone to you, Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, funnily enough, this is something we didn't really touch on uh, in, the, in the 1984 episode, but that idea of, you know, what did Orwell predict? And I thought, well... Orwell didn't predict anything because he wasn't a psychic. <laughs> he was just very astute. And mm. I think he knew that oh, if certain things persist or if, if people carry on believing this or doing this. And, and even though I said last week, that last week, last month, that um, Hitchhikers was a very different book to 1984 and is, I think there's a similarity between the authors in terms of they knew a lot about how people thought mm. and how, how things worked. And yet they expressed it in a very different oh, way. Massively. <laughs> Although you say that, weirdly, I think I mentioned last time, that I'd revisited 1984 in audiobook and it was Stephen Fry narrating. Now, I also, uh, on my way here, in fact, was listening to uh, a Stephen Fry audiobook of Hitchhiker's Guide, which is really surreal going from one to the other because they're so incredibly <laughs> different in, in tonally, stylistically, content. Uh, and yet, Stephen Fry should have his own <laughs> audiobook platform where well, he just narrates all the books. I think, doesn't he do that already? Well, he used to be like Neil Young and just have a streaming platform that's entirely dedicated to him. He's done Harry Potter and Sherlock Holmes. (laughs) But there's this bit... um, No, I've opened the wrong page, sorry. Uh, It's it's when um, Arthur's trying to get his head around the fact that the Earth no longer exists. Uh, And he can't. Uh, And yet, it's it's really interesting the way... uh, Douglas Adams talks about memory and hearing Stephen Fry narrating it, I thought, oh my God, I could almost be back in room 101 mm. for a second here. Um, and that idea that things only exist because you remember them. 
It says, uh, Nelson's column had gone. Nelson's column had gone and there would be no outcry because there was no one left to make an outcry. From now on, Nelson's column only existed in his mind. England only existed in his mind. His mind stuck there in this dank, smelly, steel-lined spaceship. And I just thought, isn't it? And I'm only saying that because I heard Stephen Fry narrating it. And it reminded me so much of, of the interrogation scene in 1984. And, uh, you know the memory hole and very, you know, and just Winston knows something emphatically, empirically, and yet against all evidence to the contrary, you know. I've um, nearly finished eating this <laughs> and listeners. I'm just chewing the last bit of sausage. I'm going to forensic detail about this. I have saved a few slices of this isn't bacon because we're going to have a tea break in a bit. We are going to have a, a tea break. A bacon yeah. sarni. Oh my but God, there's more. assured that for the... Next 15 minutes or so, I'm going to be fully on board with contributing to this, making sound and intellectual judgments about this book, rather than just making droll comments about food. And I thought I think, this podcast think, was just making droll comments about food. I think that's my job, and you do the intellectual bit about books. Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> am I Marvin? <laughs> you're the clever one. I've got the brain the size of a planet when it comes to remembering <laughs> things about books, but I don't know if I'm the clever one. Um, I, I have no memory for anything true. fictional, yeah. but a forensic memory for the oh. detail of real life. Mm. Um, well, I never remember anything about real life. But I, I, I justify this by the fact that I'm not actually paying attention. If I was paying attention, <laughs> I'd remember it all. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, I, but just going back to, you know, that uh, that sort of Arthur on the spaceship and the Earth having just oh, been yes, destroyed. Quite, yeah. We're talking about a book. <laughs> oh, what's a book? <laughs> uh, it's like an electronic device. I loved the description of the Hitchhiker's Guide mm. that it has to be electronic because if you had a paper copy, you'd need, what was it, like four trucks to carry <laughs> it around with you. It'd be like Garth Marenghi's um, Over. Oh, the Over. <laughs> yeah. Is that how you pronounce that word? Mm. Over. Yeah. <laughs> a book so big it comes with its own shelf and it can only be read when wall mounted. But, um, Again, for anyone not familiar with the origins of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, there was, I think in the early 70s, there was a book called The Hitchhiker's Guide to Europe. Oh. Um, yeah, it's a real book. Right, okay. I We were having a conversation oh. before and I assumed you were joking when you said that. No, no. So it genuinely you know, was like a, a lonely planet. That like kind of thing. It made, yeah. Mm. Um, I almost bought one to bring today, but oh. I, bought, I bought Neil Gaiman instead. I think I, think I chose wisely. <laughs> But um, yeah, that Duran Duran biography is cracking. Yeah, I'm not sure what bearing it has on the uh, on the episode, but I'm sure we'll, I'm sure <laughs> we'll, we'll work it out by the end. Um, a young Douglas Adams was hitchhiking around Europe with this book, um, with no money. I think yeah, what was it? He had no money for a youth hostel for the night. Oh. Do you know this story? No. Oh. Uh, so he spent the, you know, the, the, the Other few... Other than from personal experience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he spent the few uh, Altarian dollars he had <laughs> on, some, on some beer, I think, and got drunk and just lay in a field and was gazing up at the sky. Uh, you know how it is. We've done that many times. Yeah. <laughs> just led up and sort of had a little moment of existential dread mm. mixed with sort of cosmic wonder. Uh, and he found himself wondering, well, thinking rather someone should, should write a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. <laughs> and that, I think it was a few years before the radio play became a thing. But that was that was where the idea came from. And even though the book is really silly, and it is, it's incredibly silly, and it's hilarious, and it's warm, and it's wonderful. But I think there is a sense of, of 
I don't know that that it, that feeling you get when you when you're lying looking at the infiniteness of the cosmos, yes, especially if you're a little bit drunk. There's um, something a bit lonely about lonely. Uh, that's the word. That's exactly and the word. Arthur is well until he meets Trillian, seemingly the last yeah. human, and just to kind of contemplate the loneliness of that, it kind of sits heavy on you. And mm. likewise, there are certain passages in the book that really make you think of the infiniteness of space. And there were various points when I was rereading this where I was thinking, like, can space really go on forever? How do they know that? Like, how are scientists so sure that you don't meet a wall and you kind of say, this is the end on it at one point, and, you know, that we're not all just contained? How do they know it's infinite? But then how can it not be? And I was sat there freaking out about it whilst I was rereading this. So, what so is, what... it is... It, it should be a book that fills you with existential dread. And yet it's written in such a way that it, it's so warm and it's so funny and it's such a sort of amiable narration voice that you kind of feel like the book is hugging you whilst it's talking about these terrifying concepts. So what you're saying is space is big, really big. You just won't believe how vastly, mind-bogglingly big it is. I mean, you may think it's a long walk down to the down the road to the chemist, but that's just peanuts to space. <laughs> that, that sums it up perfectly, doesn't it? Even uh, the bit where they go into the um, Magrathian planet building oh, yeah. thing, and it's the massive sphere that's like a wall that goes on sort of infinitely in yes, every direction. and you can't Even describe the side it. Planet, yeah. it's, but the way he does describe it, you can kind of perfectly picture it. And I was listening to the descriptions of that in particular but other bits and we've both written books and poetry and things and I thinking, on poetry I, I could never happen on a description oh, as a writer no. and yet did, did it just tumble out of Douglas Adams did it come easily to him or did he have to labour over that did he sweat over it did he slave at it because it is so perfect and it makes you picture concepts that you couldn't ordinarily do and I, it just made me think he'd be a great teacher because he's oh. so good at explaining both emotional imagine, and yeah. scientific concepts that are otherwise really difficult to get mm. your head round. Like, I, sorry. If, if he was writing A Brief History of Time, it, it would be so readable and approachable. It, it, it'd have jokes in it. it well, yeah, it would. <laughs> but in a way, he kind of has done. And The Hitchhiker's mm, Guide yeah. to the Galaxy is it. Uh, well, it's funny, when I was reading, not A Brief History of Time, but um, a, is it called A Brief History of Nearly Everything by Bill Bryson? Almost yes, everything. A short history, a short history of, of everything. Yeah. everything. There were times when I was reading that when I felt like I was reading <laughs> The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, especially the chapter where he actually, he almost word for word says space is really big. Mm. And he gives an example of, of how far you would have to walk just to get to another planet. Oh, you, you couldn't because it would be longer than you would live. But, you know, if you had infinite lives, you know, it really put it into perspective. And I thought, wow, for the first time in my life, I came close to comprehending it. I don't think any human being truly can comprehend it, but what I was left, what I took away from that was, wow, the walk to the chemist really is peanuts <laughs> compared to space. <laughs> but, um, yeah, <laughs> Neil Gaiman, not in that book, in, in some other article, he described Douglas as a futurologist, I think was oh. the word, um, because he said he's not a writer in the true sense of the word. Just going back to what you were saying earlier about, you know, did it come naturally to him? And I think he, he's a magician, yeah, because he creates this illusion. I think when you read it, he's one of those writers that really gives the impression that the words are just flowing mm. out of him, you know, and they're coming. It, it, it's just so natural to read. You almost feel like he just sat down and wrote it in one go. But I believe the opposite is true. I think he right. really 
sort of slaved over it and notoriously found it quite hard. Um, oh, I, I empathise. It's kind of nice to hear the writer. I just find writing difficult because I find writing almost painful these days. Mm, it kind of makes my same. head hurt. Yeah. It makes me sick. And the older I get, the more difficult I find it. And yet, we have a, a nice tradition where <laughs> us and all our friends get together and yeah. read Christmas ghost stories to each to each other each year. And uh, my stories tend to be a little bit funny and silly. And I think people would probably think that they <laughs> uh, sort of come out of me very naturally and that they sound effortless, I hope. Um, they do, they do. Thank you. Douglas Adams' way. I, I, I read an interview <laughs> with him where he said, uh, and, and I was almost, dare I admit, disappointed because mm. uh, it was like a peek behind the curtain and I almost wish that I hadn't known. So, you know, spool forwards five minutes if you don't want to know. You don't know what it is. But um, <laughs> I don't know what it is. He said, Should I leave the room yeah, for five come back minutes? in five minutes while I talk to a different <laughs> version of you. Um, he said that sometimes he'll come up with a really, really funny line that he's put quite a lot of work into. And he'll kind of hang on to it. And he said, and then I'll use it in where I throw it away in the scene. And people think I'm a genius because they think, oh, my God, he can write something that funny and just throw it away That's when actually exactly it's crafted yeah and yeah. i could i can tell that yeah. only because i've worked with you <laughs> uh, but i think most people think my god that just came so naturally you know i literally have a list yeah. on my phone of funny lines i've come up with and jokes and things that i think would be clever or good <laughs> in a book um and well maybe i'm giving too much of a peek behind the curtain here, i've spooled forward five yeah, minutes yeah, i'm not so... actually listening to this <laughs> um well you might <laughs> I don't know if you know this story, but you might take comfort in it. That um, I know we're, we're talking about the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, but just to briefly uh, talk about one of the other books in the series, the fourth book in the Hitchhiker's Trilogy, So Long and Thanks for All the Fish. The last one. The last one, yes. yeah. Um, do you remember the cover to that book? You should know, yeah. I showed it about five, about five minutes ago. The walrus. Yeah. yeah. Do you remember the bit in the book with the walrus in? No. No. <laughs> there is no walrus in the book. Oh, interesting, right. And the reason for this was, um, the publishers not only had given Douglas his advance, um, but they'd also basically sold the book and the printing presses were ready to go. Everything was ready to go, but there was no book. Oh, right. uh, his agent, he, he was in a bit of a, you know, when Adrian Mole's trying to write Awfully Good. Oh, God. And he eventually admits to his agent he hasn't written a word of it. That <laughs> oh, happened. So they sort of kidnapped him. Uh, and locked him in a hotel. I mean, not literally, but they, they, they booked a hotel for him and said, look, you're going to sit in this hotel room, I think for three weeks, and you're not allowed out till you've written the book. It was a forerunner to the uh, international travel hotel quarantines people have had to do in the last couple of years. <laughs> I know. Why haven't we been more prolific? Where are all the walrus books? Anyway, so one of the, um, you know, whilst everything was, all the gears were in motion to actually release the book, um, they had to get the artwork done. And so they needed a, he gave them a synopsis, which turned out to be completely incorrect. <laughs> And we need some artwork. So what's in the book? He said, well, there's a walrus in it. So they said, right, great, put a picture of a walrus on the cover. But then, of course, when he actually wrote the book, there was no walrus in it. So that's why there is a walrus on the cover to So Long and Thanks for All the Fish. And also, uh, the, the, So Long and Thanks for All the Fish is famously uh, a line from the first book, yeah. uh, which has no relevance to the fourth <laughs> book. <laughs> and yet, despite the way it was written torturously, basically almost at gunpoint, he was imprisoned, forced to write a book. He has a picture of a walrus on the cover. There's no walrus in the book. It's called So Long and Thanks for All the Fish, which doesn't really match. And yet, 
it's my favourite. Yeah, yeah, I think it's my uh, favourite as well. I, it's cause... perfect. It is. I think it is a work of absolute genius. And I think, you know, again, to contradict, well, or to go against Douglas's own advice, he is a genius. Or rather, he's very, very good at writing books. Uh, or very, very good at writing The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, at least. Um, the one thing I um, slightly struggled with, knowing that we were going to talk about this, was knowing exactly which bit happened in which book. Because after I'd watched the TV series and I bought the uh, bumper edition, which was almost as thick as the VHS double package. <laughs> I thought you were going to say uh, almost as thick as the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy <laughs> print edition. Well, true, true. Um, but I kind of read the all four books as uh, essentially one volume that was split into four parts. So because the TV series also incorporates some of the restaurants at mm. the end of the universe, and because I finished The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy originally and then turned to the next page and went straight onto the restaurants at the end of the universe and so mm. on, I struggled to kind of find any distinction between the books. And so it was interesting when I was rereading the book uh, as prep for this, mm. how much of what I thought happened in this doesn't happen ah, in this. Yes. It's remarkably brief, actually. It is remarkably brief, So a lot brief. of the yeah. stuff in So Long Thanks for All the Fish, even yeah. being three whole books mm. later, I thought took place in this. So hopefully we'll have a chance to talk about So Long and Thanks for All the I, Fish at I some point really as well. So. Maybe if we ever have a final series of a book at breakfast, mm. we, yeah, a farewell It would be appropriate as So Long. Exactly, yeah. yeah. There's not been any fish, though. No, there thanks. might be vegan fish things. So long, and thanks for all the toe fish yeah. <laughs> and chips. We could have the custard like Matt Smith. I think we might have to have fish fingers and custard yeah. for uh, a certain event next year. Maybe. Ah, right, yes. I'm That's if you. there's a second series. Mm. Please tell me I've got a second series. <laughs> Tony Hayes is being suspiciously quiet there. <laughs> anyway, what are we talking about? Yeah, the, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the novel, it ends really abruptly, doesn't yes. it? Yes. But yeah, what what did surprise me though, revisiting it for this, because I mentioned I sent you a message, I think, saying. I desperately wanted to carry on reading. Mm. I wanted to read Restaurant at the End of the Universe and all the others, but I won't for the reason you just mentioned, which was I don't want to confuse events. So if we're talking about the first book, let's try and... Um, and I knew it was quite short and it ended very abruptly, but I was surprised actually how actually self-contained it is yeah. as a story in terms of, you know, it... It starts with Arthur's house is about to be demolished, but then you find out that actually the, the world is about to be demolished. And there's something kind of microcosmic versus macrocosmic about mm. that, which kind of sums up the whole book. Because on the one hand, we talked about that sense of loneliness and sort of cosmic alienation of staring at the infiniteness of, of space. But of course, when he gets into space... Uh, he kind of realizes that everything is actually quite English, yeah, <laughs> and quite familiar seeming, <laughs> and that is, I suppose, one of the things about this book why it's so warm and comforting. <laughs> it's very, very English in that sort of bumbling, charming way. You know, is there any tea on this special? <laughs> um, but slarty fart, slarty fart, fart, fart. That's it. It does seem like a classic English eccentric yes. that you get in the pub. He's a bit ranting about satellites or he's something. He's a bit Professor Cronotis. Yes, he from is. From oh, and Dirk Gently. Yes. <laughs> um, but also just the I but the resolution of the plot because you think of it as a kind of quite a meandering plot and, it, and in a lot of respects it doesn't really follow conventional narrative structure, um, and yet, <laughs> I mean, part of that is that 
it, the sort of the plot device of the infinite improbability drive that things <laughs> sort of just happen. But I think in my head, I had the, the idea of it as this book where it kind of lurches from one thing to the other. But really, actually, again, in terms of what you were saying about forgetting which bit is in which book exactly, I'd forgotten how much information you get in that in that very first book um about the pan-dimensional intergalactic beings uh and their quest to find the answer i think if you'd have asked me you know for a few years having not not read the books um i would have said that all the deep thought ultimate question stuff was in maybe book two. Oh yeah i thought it was way later but and i've forgotten how crucial it was to the plot massively. as well yeah like, I, that it, it when it was revealing all that i thought is this a bit of the non sequitur mm, or mm. I, i'd actually forgotten that the Earth yeah. was a supercomputer built by the so, mice so it, to yeah. come up with the question to suit the answer. So as as a as a self-contained that probably quite baffling to anyone that's not read the book. But I'm assuming people have read the book if they're listening to this. I, I think they just if they didn't chat with us, if they didn't understand that, I think the problem is that they didn't really understand the question. Ah yes. Um, but yeah, it's remarkably sort of self-contained. It starts with the last human. Last humans, the Earth has been destroyed, but then they find out what the Earth really was and why it existed, and the answer is still in Arthur's brain. It's you know, it's it's remarkably concise, and and I almost think that had had the other books never existed, it would still be as revered. Mm. And it's so much of what makes Hitchhikers as a franchise, as an entity, brilliant. It's all there in that first book. But just um, before we have a tea break, I would like to. So I almost felt that coming into this discussion, I'd be having to make a dreadful confession, which was that I much prefer the book to the radio series. Um, because I always thought, you know, that being technically the original, that everybody would sort of hold that as sacrosanct mm. and the absolute, you know, definitive version. Well, and we all know that the book of anything should be the definitive <laughs> of version of anything yeah. except Big Fish. Well, but we're, we're biased because we saw the film first. Mm. You know, there are people out there who read Big Fish. And what I would say, this is a, this is a tangent. Um, <laughs> I didn't, in, I think Big Fish is one of the best films I've ever seen. And I didn't enjoy the book at all, but it's totally different. Oh, I didn't enjoy the book. I just didn't right. think it was a patch on the film. Anyway, that was that a, was a, a complete tangent. non sequitur. <laughs> but um, I forgot yeah. what I was saying. Take that oh. your pipe and smoke it, Douglas Adams. <laughs> just you wait, just you wait. Big fish, Babel fish. We'll find a way to <laughs> join it up. It'll be seamless. Um, but um, I was quite pleased when I was reading Don't Panic uh, that I think Douglas Adams considered the book the definitive version too. Don't uh, Panic being the Neil Gaiman book. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's not really important, but yes. <laughs> don't Panic. Um, uh, and I felt sort of vindicated somehow. Uh, and because what I didn't realise, well, I'd never really paid it close enough attention. Um, the first, I think, three episodes, three or four episodes of the radio series were written by Douglas Adams, but the last two were co-written. Oh, right. I can't remember who with off the top of my head. Um, but, and the reason it happened, he was basically, he was really skinned. I think he actually, he had to move back in with his mum. Oh. Uh, and that's, he was, he lived at his mum's house while he wrote Hitchhiker's Guide, the, the, the script. That's because he'd spent his last money on that youth hostel. That's right, yeah. I wonder how he got home. Maybe he had a return <laughs> ticket. Or maybe he just hitchhiked oh, his course, entire yeah. way home. There's a lorry driver. I think he had a sub-ether ray in his rucksack <laughs> somewhere. Underneath his towel, obviously. Um, but uh, So he sort of went from really struggling to then suddenly he had a, a radio series and then was offered the job as script editor on Doctor Who. So he sort of felt like he had to take it. So the reason... 
he wasn't able to write the last two episodes of the radio series was because he was doing Doctor Who. Oh, interesting. I didn't um, know that. And sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll check in the tea break because it feels only right to mention him. Uh, the guy that he co-wrote the last two episodes of the radio series with, um, when the publishers asked him to do a book, uh, they asked him to co-write it and they agreed. But then he went away and thought about it and said, actually... I feel like I really want to do this oh, right. on my own. And there was a bit of animosity between them at the time because I think the other guy had already spent the advance. And, oh, God. And it kind of, its solicitors got involved and they had a bit of a falling out. Oh. But then Douglas agreed to give him half the advance and, and they, they remained good friends. He actually... Have you read The Meaning of Lith? No. Oh, well, it, he, he went on to co-write The Meaning of Lith oh, with I that see. same friend. Oh, okay. Um, so, yeah, they, they made it up in the end. But I, th- but I thought it was really interesting that he considered, like, everything, you know... He, he never saw the, the movie made during his lifetime, but he wrote a film script, I think, and he'd worked on a Hitchhiker's video game, the radio series and the TV series, and they were all collaborative except the books, which were pure Douglas. Um, so oh, thank feel, God. Yeah, thank God. And I feel, I, you know, I, I, it, for me, it was always a dirty secret that I preferred the book to the radio series. And don't get me wrong, I like the radio series very much, but we'll, we'll get into that later when we talk about other... I won't say adaptations, although that's strictly not true because it's the book that's the adaptation because the radio series came first. But we'll talk about other productions of Hitchhikers later on. But but yeah, I just wanted to say that I was really pleased to hear that Douglas thought that the book was the d- definitive version because oh. in my heart, it always has been. Anyway, um, as you know, I aspire to be a hobbit. <laughs> uh, and even though it's my birthday, it's a hobbit tradition to give other people presents on your birthday. <laughs> so before we have a break, I've, I've got you a present. Oh. Happy birthday to me. That's very kind of you. I've bought you nothing. So. Well, I, I mean, I, there's no change there, is there? I left some beers in his fridge, <laughs> which he then passed off as a gift. <laughs> Ooh. The Salmon of Doubt. Now, I don't not... know much about this. It it's The Salmon of Doubt was an... Uh, uh, a Dirk Gently novel Douglas was working on before he died. Oh. So it's what it's what existed of that, the, the first few chapters, I believe. But it's also a collection of essays. And you'll notice I've bookmarked one of the pages for you. Ah, hmm. oh, and there's a passage on tea. Yeah, so last... How interesting, So last right. episode, we made tea <laughs> uh, in accordance with George Orwell's 11 Rules for Making Tea, <laughs> which I really enjoyed. So this tea break... It's going to be a Douglas Adams tea break. There ain't no party like a Douglas Adams tea party. Don't panic. We'll be right back. So we've just uh, had our tea break and... um, a little like Orwell last time, Douglas Adams had some musings on tea, although they're uh, a little bit less um, stringent. Rigid, yeah. Rigid, yeah. yes, that's a good way. It's interesting Orwell's. to note where they agree and where they disagree. Yes, yeah. See if you can spot it at home too. <laughs> this is Douglas Adams' thoughts on tea. One or two Americans have asked me why the English like tea so much, which never seems to them to be a very good drink. To understand... You have to make it properly. There is a very simple principle to the making of tea, and it's this. To get the proper flavour of tea, the water has to be boiling, not boiled, when it hits the tea leaves. 
I love that he capitalizes the ing yes. to emphasize how important it is. Boiling. Uh, and it's it's interesting to note that that was a point that Orwell was equally emphatic yes. on. And indeed, I am myself. <laughs> the water must be boiled. ing when it hits the leaves. He doesn't use the word impact as Orwell did, but you know. He can, <laughs> but I think no. the the severity is is equally emphasized with the capitalization. <laughs> so we'll 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 let him off. If it's merely hot, then the tea will be insipid. Very true. That's why we English have these odd rituals, such as warming the teapot first, so as not to cause the boiling water to cool down too fast as it hits the pot. Another Orwellism, warming mm. the pot. And that's why the American habit of bringing a teacup, a tea bag, and a pot of hot water to the table is merely the perfect way of making a thin, pale, watery cup of tea that nobody in their right mind would want to drink. That's very true, and I, I can attest to that fact. Uh, I've been to America once. Oh. And I, well, for the whole time there, we couldn't get a decent cup of tea, which won't surprise anyone. Uh, but That's why a, you've never been back. No, yes. Um, <laughs> nothing to do with the prohibitive <laughs> cost. It was just, just the tea, solely the tea. And a very traumatic experience. <laughs> I probably told you at the time, um, well, it was a long time ago. We were in a, in a, a cafe, um, and we ordered three cups of tea, which you think would be perfectly safe. Now, by this point, we were used to the kind of the barrage of questions which would <laughs> accompany that request. But uh, uh, iced tea, no, you know, because it was it was Arizona, it was hot. Everyone, nobody <laughs> wanted hot drinks. Well, they the drank, fools. Yeah, yeah, it was all ice. No, not iced tea, hot tea, herbal tea, fruit tea. No, 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 tea, 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 black tea. Uh, so we we got over the usual hurdles, and yeah, okay, yeah, three cups of tea, and then the person came, and I. I can't, you, you think I'm exaggerating, but they brought a massive jug of boiled, not boiling, boiled oh. water. We assume it had been boiled some point that week. So <laughs> a massive jug of lukewarm water. Didn't even have a lid oh. on it. Um, and then, hilariously, an equally sized jug, also full of milk. So the, the milk to tea <laughs> ratio was 50 50. Uh, three, three cups, a small plate with a ring of sliced uh, of lemon slices on uh, a massive bowl of sugar uh, and then a tiny saucer in the middle of all this with one lone miserable looking tea bag sat on it. Oh no! Oh. <laughs> I mean, the, the the water was barely warm by the time we, we shared, the three of us shared the one bag. And I bet they thought with all that presentation that they'll, oh, they'll love this. They'll, so they'll those English people yeah. be like a treat, a home yeah. away from home. They looked them. so proud of themselves oh. like we've made the English people some tea <laughs> and we were just trying not to cry. I've had similar experiences, not that bad, but in Europe and I must say, I was actually glad with the arrival of the, the chain coffee company invading the entire planet because it did mean I could get a semi-decent cup of tea in Paris or Berlin or Dresden. Mm. Yeah. Sorry, Douglas, continue. <laughs> yeah, carry on, Douglas. <laughs> the Americans are all mystified about why the English make such a big thing out of tea because most Americans have never had a good cup of tea. That's why they don't understand. In fact, the truth of the matter is that most English people don't know how to make a good cup of tea anymore either. And most people drink cheap instant coffee instead. Once we again, I'm thinking of uh, Drink Tea for the Love of God by Gula <laughs> Shaker. All you can get is a disgusting drink coffee. <laughs> it's a pity 
and it gives Americans the impression that the English are just generally clueless about hot stimulants. Yeah, I love no the way thing. he puts that. <laughs> yeah. 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 True of many people, though. <laughs> so the best advice I can give to an American arriving in England is this. Go to Marks and Spencer, other shops are available, <laughs> and buy a packet of Earl Grey tea. Go back to where you're staying and boil a kettle of water. When it is coming to the boil, open the sealed packet and sniff careful you may feel a bit dizzy but this is in fact perfectly legal <laughs> when the kettle is boiled pour a little of it into a teapot swirl it around and tip it out again put a couple or three depending on the size of the pot of tea bags into the pot if i was really trying to lead you into the paths of righteousness i would tell you to use three leaves rather than bags but let's just take this in easy stages I like the fact that uh, Adams makes that little concession there. Orwell was very strict about the tea leaves, but then Orwell's rules were probably written sometime in the 40s, whereas I think I believe this article was written in 1999. And okay. Douglas understood the, the fast-paced nature <laughs> of modern life. Uh, and we're back to being Philistines this month. Last, last time we, we indulged in tea leaves, but we're back to bags. But they are real grey. Bollocks to the rules. Exactly. That's what I say. Bring the kettle back up to the boil, says Adams, <laughs> and then pour the boiling water as quickly as you can into the pot. Let it stand for two or three minutes, I think five personally, Ooh. but there we go. And then pour it into a cup. Some people will tell you that you shouldn't have milk with Earl Grey. Just a slice of lemon. Screw them. I like it with milk. If you think you will like it with milk, then it's probably best to put some milk into the bottom of the cup before you pour in the tea. We've come to the first major controversy here. Yeah. It's it's a fight to the death between Orwell and Adams. I didn't want to fall out with Douglas Adams in the Douglas Adams theme podcast, but you I'm, don't I'm, I'm not with first. you on this one. I'm no. fighting the corner with Orwell. However, like I said, we, Orwell was very stringent, and we, we felt on a bound to follow his instructions to the letter. Um, and fortunate, and we did, and I agree with almost all his points, and I really enjoyed the tea that we had. Douglas Adams seems much more laid back. Yes, uh, he does, and he even makes a little uh, concession that his way of doing things yeah. isn't necessarily the socially accepted way of doing. He's things. a guy who really knows where his towel is. Yeah, um, and he, he says, you know, if if you what does he say? If you feel you would like it with milk, have it with milk. Yeah. Um, and in terms of putting the milk into the cup first. Well, but, that, but that's the major thing for me. You know, as, as you know, if you've listened to previous episodes, I'm a milk second yes, person. As, as you, the but, correct way. But I do not enjoy Earl Grey with milk. It's too sweet for me. I like it with a slice of lemon. And and I felt on the one hand sort of honour bound to have my tea Douglas's way. But he seems so relaxed about it. If you feel you would like it with milk, well, I, I don't feel I would. So I've not <laughs> gone for the full Adam's experience. I've got some Earl Grey tea with a slice of lemon. And it's made from tea bags. But the point, the important factor is that the water was boil ing. Boiling, <laughs> yes. I'm having mine with milk. So we're each kind of, we're having a tea selection yeah. box, as it were, to try out <laughs> both sides of it. Uh, and I wouldn't uh, if you got Orwell and Adams together in a room, would they have had a polite discussion about this and respected each other's ways, or would they have come to fisticuffs? Definitely fisticuffs. Mm. <laughs> I think uh, Orwell might have had the upper hand, seeing as he saw 
uh, combat. <laughs> well, I'm suppose, not yes. sure. I think Adams sort of just you know went to Oxford and got drunk. And, uh, but you never know. Yes, but he hitchhiked around. He hitchhiked Europe, around. He, he learned in youth a thing or two. So is that? Uh, is, does he have anything more to say on the subject of tea? Or that? What about? Uh, we were up to the milk, weren't we? If you pour milk into a cup of hot tea, you will scald the milk. If you think you will prefer it with a slice of lemon, then, well, add a slice of lemon. Which I did. <laughs> Drink it. After a few moments, you will begin to think that the place you've come to isn't maybe quite so strange and crazy after all. That's lovely. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for my gift. Oh, you're That's, welcome. Uh, there are two gifts I've uh, got from this podcast so far, because we were just... Uh, I was just admitting to Chris in the tea break oh, that yeah, uh, yeah. very recently um, I've been... I've been trying to write a book and I've been struggling with it so much. I find it kind of so painful and sickening to write that I'd almost considered drawing a line under it and giving it up. Um, and it's only really been the the enjoyment that other people seem to derive from it that's kind of made me wobble about that and think, well, I'm proud of it. Other people seem to like it, so maybe I should do it. But at the same time, why should I if I don't enjoy it? But hearing that Douglas Adams struggled with it and that he wrote such beautiful works and the world is a better place and a more beautiful place for having them a part of it has made me want to kind of carry on the fight. Yeah, you definitely so, should. Cause I think, thank you, Douglas. I think he, he loved being a writer in the sense of having written books mm. and, and radio series and things, but he detested the process of sitting down and putting one word in after another. Um... Shall we talk about adaptations? Even though that's a strange way. It's a bit like the Rose episode where mm. the novel we were discussing was a novelization of a TV episode. So technically, the radio series came first. Now, I don't know when I eventually got round to listening to the radio series, but. I still of, haven't all the way through. Well, as in, I think when we say the radio series, I think we can comfortably say series one and two because the rest came much later, mm. didn't they? And they were, I believe, the. Is it the tertiary phase? The the third radio series was based on life, the universe, and everything, as opposed to the way around. So it's only the first two series that were the the, the original, you might say. Um, and that, yeah, you know what? I'd heard snippets definitely, but I was probably about thirty by the time I heard the original radio series. Or you know, sat down and listened to it all the way through. And one of my favourite things about the TV series, which, as you know, was my introduction to. Hitchhiker's Guide was Ford. Mm. For, the, the TV Ford is brilliant. Even though he looks nothing like he's described in the novel. You know, he's not ginger. Uh, and I think he's very young uh, looking, the actor. Although I don't know if that's because, obviously, Beetlejuiceans live much longer. Than, oh, that's, I that's mean, a good get out. Yeah, I mean, well, Zaphod is supposed to be about 200 in the book, isn't he? I believe. <laughs> but um, I can't... I, I like it. I, you know, I, I like the radio series a lot, but... I don't like the, the Radio Ford as much. I can't remember the actor's name. It's the guy from Peep Show. <laughs> oh, David Mitchell. <laughs> yeah, that's the one, yeah. <laughs> um, but it was really interesting. I was reading about why that same actor didn't play the part in the TV series. Mm. And it was a conscious decision. They said because whilst they thought he was good on audio, he didn't look... He looked very English and ordinary, they said. Uh, they said he didn't look quite other and alien oh, enough. Interesting. And they said they needed somebody with that quality, which is why they recast that oh, role. Right. I, I, obviously, it's the same Arthur. I believe it's the same, uh, definitely the same Zayford. I don't know about Trillian, actually. But, um, uh, but, and, and I read a great um, 
a quote from Douglas Adams about Ford and the creation of Ford, where because we've always said there's something a little bit doctorish about Ford, only slightly. Yeah. Um, but I guess it's that you know you have your human character who's being introduced to the wonders of the universe by this weird alien yeah. who perhaps only seems so weird because you don't understand their customs and the, you know, the way they view things. But they're rather amiable nonetheless. Absolutely. It's like Tom Baker always said, the play a benevolent alien. Mm. But then Ford isn't necessarily benevolent. He's, and that's what Douglas Adams said. He said, he said, I wanted to create a character who was basically the Doctor, but instead of the Doctor is always the person who would save the universe. Whereas if the universe is in danger, Ford would just try and find the nearest party. Yeah, <laughs> that's a great way of, of, of putting it. But um, but yes, yeah, so what are your thoughts on, on the radio series? I don't know enough of it to really kind of make an informed opinion. I've heard individual episodes just when I've been in the kitchen and mm. put Radio 4 on. And I used to live in a, a shared house in Leathershoom, um, which is a suburb of Manchester. And their kitchen had uh, Radio 4 on um, day and night. Uh, so you, whenever you went in there, <laughs> right. it was just constantly on. And it was one of the, the little pleasures of, of living there in an otherwise kind of st- strange experience where I felt like I didn't fit in. That you always reminded me yeah, Adrian Mole, I think it's the wilderness years where he's renting, oh, yes. renting an attic flat above a family's oh, home. Yes. <laughs> it was exactly <laughs> like that, yeah. But one of the little comforts was occasionally hearing Hitchhiker's oh. Guide to the Galaxy on the radio. But I've never actually listened to it sequentially. I've only heard individual parts on it. So I liked it, but I really don't feel like I've had the time to warm to it properly. Um, the, the only two, oh no, three adaptations I'm familiar with are the TV series, the film that was made in the noughties, ah, yes. and Douglas Adams' own uh, reading of the audiobook. Oh. Um, so the, the TV series we're probably both the most familiar with. Second yeah. To so so the film. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On paper, it should have been the best thing ever. Martin Freeman as Arthur, mm. what a great casting choice. Stephen Fry as as the voice of the book. Um, uh, we had a song in there by um, Neil Hannon. Yes. So long, thanks for all the oh, fish. I love the song. Uh, Alan Rickman as the voice yes. of Marvin. It's one of those things you read about when you, you look at the cast mm. and you read about the people making it and you think this is going to be brilliant. A bit like when I read about the Paddington films and I was dubious because mm. I love the books so much that they were going to get it right. But with Paddington, yeah. it was there and they absolutely nailed it. But somehow put, putting together all those parts in the Hitchhiker's movie Just, it did make nothing it for me. It, I'm not I, saying it was terrible. No, but I've never rewatched it. No. I've, I've never wanted to rewatch it. it just, yeah, I don't know why. I can't really... I have a suspicion, um, but maybe partially it's bound up with, obviously, as I've said, um, my introduction was the TV series, and so I always see the characters as their TV versions. And I guess I'm just so in love with those. Most of them, yeah. I've got one hole to pick. Of of those uh, performances are kind of etched etched in my brain, really, as being the definitive version. But I suppose there was a... I think I I sent you a a screenshot of, um, I I think, Douglas, Douglas Adams saying that he regretted giving Zaphod the extra head and the, and the third <laughs> arm. Because, that you know, it's a throwaway gag on radio, but then you've got to make a whole prosthetic head for the TV, you know. Um, and I think that kind of ties into... There's a brilliant bit where they're first, uh, like, beamed aboard, if that's the right word, the Heart of Gold. Um, and there's just a reference to a passing maniac. <laughs> and there are all these brilliant things, like, visually... that. that 
you can, despite the fact I've said I think the book is the definitive version, you can sort of tell it originated in radio because there's so much dialogue and there's so much description. Um, and it conjures the, these bizarre images. You know, there's an infinite number of monkeys here who want to discuss <laughs> this this uh, script they've written for Hamlet, or whatever yes. it is. And you're turning into a penguin. Yeah, stop, stop it. it. Um, and I think it it it's best when left to the imagination. Uh, and so, arguably, now I know we we touched on this briefly before. You were saying that maybe the TV series wasn't as good as you remembered, because well... I, I, I I know it kind of looks a bit crap. But I was I was watching uh, revisiting some Mighty Boosh the other night, which I've not watched for a good few years. Watching the Priest and the Beast, you know, the episode <laughs> in the desert, and I was thinking, you know, the, the Boosh looks cheap and tacky and naff, and and I, I never it was supposed to exactly. I never for, for one second thought it was supposed to look anything other than the way it did, mm. and that was its charm. And and I always assumed the same of the Hitchhiker's TV series. It was supposed to look wobbly and plastic, <laughs> and, but I thought maybe it wasn't. Maybe they were intending to make something that looked a little bit more like Star Wars. <laughs> I don't know. And I think, I, I think, is that the problem with the film? Now, it's nearly 20 years old now, so it probably looks a bit dated. It, you know, <sighs> CGI, I, I don't know. I, thought, I only saw it, we went to the cinema, 2005 when it came out yeah. but it looked sort of big budget effects spaceships that looked like spaceships you know men were real men women were real women small furry creatures from Alpha Centauri were real, <laughs> real small, small furry creatures from Alpha Centauri what I mean was like th they gave it scale and scope that perhaps doesn't really work because it, it isn't an epic no. in, in a Star Wars sense it, it, it's mad and it's quirky and it's quaint and it's English and perhaps the best place Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy lives is, is in your own head. Yes. Uh, which brings me to um, a little section in Don't Panic that I'd, I'd bookmarked where Douglas talks about the adaptation, the TV adaptation. I was going to say is. he wasn't around when the film was Sadly made, not. Was he? Um, I, I know he was, he, it was, I think it was in development hell for a while and I know he wrote a treatment for it if not an entire screenplay. So I don't know how closely the version that came out resembles what he wrote but um i think hopefully he got the money from the film deal before he died if that's some <laughs> consolation but um i don't think he was totally happy with the tv version i don't think people got on well with the, the director of it but um i thought this was really really interesting um because of course i'm sort of talking about this assuming that listeners have seen the tv series um but if you haven't the the best and most famous thing about it are the gorgeous um, what would you call them? Sort of when, obviously, in the radio series and the book, periodically you get sort of snippets of the Hitchhiker's yes. Guide to the Galaxy <laughs> itself, the, the book within the book. Uh, and the graphics. Gra they're sort yeah. of computer graphics of sort of like digital images and text scrolling across the screen. But those visuals weren't actually graphics, they were actually hand drawn illustrations. Wow. And um, I guess yeah, it was made in. It came out in 1980, didn't it? So I guess even even then, the sort of uh, digital technology wouldn't have been up to much. That it, makes something that seems quite shonky when you look at it back at now actually seem quite impressive. Yeah, when skillful, you amazing. But like, it's incredible. To me, you know, they're not only like a quintessential part of that TV series, but those visuals and the way the text text crawls across the screen and, and a deli delivery of the voice, they're a quintessential part of, of the Hitchhiker's yeah, Guide to the Galaxy as, the as a concept. You know, and because I saw the series first, when I read the book, I do imagine those those graphics in my head when 
when you get the extracts from the book itself. And I've got a brilliant um, quote here of Douglas talking about how those came about, but also like, it's really interesting the way he talks about um, so, you know, the, the difference in the medium and, and his approach to it. The medium dictates the style of the show and transferring from one to another means you're going against the grain the whole time. It's the point where you go against the grain that you come up with the best bits. The bits that were easiest to transfer were the least interesting bits of the TV show. The idea of readouts from the book itself done in computer graphics was that kind of thing. So you get little drawings, diagrams, all the words the narrator is saying, plus further expansion, footnotes and little details, all coming at you from the screen. You can't possibly take it all in. I like the idea of a programme where, when you get to the end of it, you feel you didn't get it all. <laughs> there are so many programmes that are half an hour long, and at the end of it, you're half an hour further into your life with nothing to show for it. <laughs> if you didn't get it all, that's much more stimulating. I wasn't as pleased with the TV series as I was with the radio series because I missed the intimacy of the radio work. Television pictures stifle the picturing facilities of the mind. I wanted to step over that problem by packing the screen with so much information that more thought, not less, was provoked by, by the readers. I, I stumbled over that then because I thought we're not readers, we're viewers. But of course, he's talking <laughs> about reading text on the screen. And he says... Uh, sometimes what you see is less exciting than what you envisage. And I just thought that was a brilliant approach. And also mm. in terms of what we were saying before about perhaps why the film didn't work so well is that on, on radio and in, in the novel, so much of it exists within your head. But he's kind of given us uh, the key there as to why we and so many other people love the TV series is that it still gives you that scope of imagination. Mm. And it is, it's, there are bits of, of, of the text now that even, you know, 20 odd years later, I still haven't read them all. And I always <laughs> intend to go back and pause bits. And, and it is wonderful when you watch it, you know, for the fifth time or whatever, and, and you know it so well that you can kind of ignore the narration and you can read the, the, the footnotes and pay attention to the little diagrams that flash up. But it, again, I love the idea that it's information overload, it's sensory overload, it, it's bigger on the inside. There's more in this TV show than you can take in on one viewing. And I just think that's brilliant. Even that is quite forward thinking. Yeah. Because if you think about round the clock news coverage now, like BBC News mm. 24, they've got a constant panel of information flashing along the bottom while somebody talks at you about something different. And how are you supposed to take that in? Yeah, and it yeah. kind of makes me think of the Hitchhiker's Guide in the TV series. <laughs> yeah. It's funny, when we started revisiting this, I was thinking about the TV series, and um, I'd been thinking that the TV series was perhaps beloved to us and quite a lot of other people, but maybe perhaps it wasn't that good if you looked at it subjectively. But I was listening to um, a Douglas Adams read audiobook of oh, this, yeah. and it was amazing how close to the TV series he did the voices. <laughs> Um, and I'm not sure if the audiobook was recorded before the TV series, in which case it would suggest that he had a big input into the series and the characters were speaking the way he wanted them to speak, mm. or whether it was recorded after the TV series and he thought, well, they got those characters right, so I'm going to speak like them. But it's amazing, like particularly Zathod. Yeah. He talks exactly like um, hey. Mark. Um, <laughs> I can't remember that. Okay, well... It doesn't matter too much, but he, he talks exactly like the actor who plays Zathod does. Um, 
But the one thing I would say that I struggle with a little bit about the TV series is Trillium. Mm. And it's not to pick on Sandra Dickinson, I think it is, who yeah. played Trillium. But there's, if we had to pick one problem with The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy as a whole, there aren't many women in it. No. Um, I, the, and that's Douglas Adams's problem, not mm. Sandra Dickinson's problem. No, it's, it's not. Any, anyone who's, who's played uh, Trillium. Uh, and I think um, he even, it was quite sad, I remember reading him talking about the various characters and he just basically said Trillian isn't a character. And he, he acknowledged that as a flaw in, in his own writing. And in fact, I've even got a, a passage here. I'm glad you brought that up um, because he says, and it, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a cop out, but I was, I was glad that he acknowledged this rather than tried to defend it because... Um, uh, he talks about casting uh, Sandra Dickinson and saying that she's completely opposite to how Trillian is yes. described in the book because she's dark-haired and English in the book. And then she's well, a... she's almost Arabic-looking in the book, That's he what says. he says, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and Sandra she's... Dickinson certainly doesn't look Arabic. She's blonde and American. But the reason... Uh, he said that they auditioned 200 people for, for the role. Wow. And the reason they chose her is that it was such a relief to find someone who could actually read Trillian's lines with some humour and give the character oh, some life. And I think he, I think he particularly felt that because he knew he'd written her without any humour or mm. life. She is just there. and She's a basil exposition. Well, she is. And these are Douglas Adams' own words. I always find women very mysterious anyway. I never know what they want. <laughs> Typical public schoolboy. <laughs> yeah. I always get very nervous about writing one. Writing one. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> As I think I'll do something terribly wrong. You, you read other male accounts of women and you think, he's got them wrong. And I feel very nervous about going into that area. He says, um, everyone always asks me why Trillian is such a cipher of a character. It's because I never really knew anything about her. Mm. Which is like the one failing of the Hitchhiker series. Not And not just the character of Trillian. That, I know we get Fenchurch in so long, thanks for all the fish. She, she's much more interesting. Is, is, goes so much to address well the rounded. balance. But there, there aren't really any good female characters in mm. the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And I don't, you know... It's not so much a flaw with the character or any of the actresses who played it. Uh, it was was it Zoe Deschanel in the in the yeah in the two thousand five movie and who who voiced her in the radio series? Oh, Susan um, but, Susan Sheridan. But ultimately, they don't really have a lot to work with, mm. uh, and that is a fault of the writing. But again, in terms of you know, he's not a genius. He's not perfect, and and I do respect that he was completely upfront about that. Mm. I and he wasn't even. It's not important to me. He said, "I'm nervous of doing it, and mm. I don't understand women." And and you know what? It, another. It's a shame that Douglas died so young. So I'd love to know what he would make of the world now. And I think he'd still be adapting Hitchhikers for different mediums. Yes, I think that he we'd would. probably be on the seventh radio series <laughs> now. And perhaps you know he you know he was always evolving as a person mm. and definitely as a writer. And I think I think he might have addressed that and overcome that. And I like know. to hope he would. Um, but yeah, it's a. So it's a, it's a shame, but um, there you go. And we haven't talked about Zaphod much either. What are your thoughts <laughs> on the, the President of the Galaxy? It's funny that he's probably the most outlandish character, and yeah, we've not given him a, <laughs> a second glance. He would... Well, from a narrative <laughs> point of view, he doesn't really serve much purpose, especially no, not in this book. but I love him. Oh, I'm um, not saying I don't love him, but he's just kind of, it's very <laughs> much Ford and Arthur's story. It's funny how much I love it when I kind of realised um, there's a line uh, in the book that jumped out at me on a reread this time where it says, 
the job of the galactic president was not to wield power, but to attract attention away from it. And I thought, hang on, Zaphod Beeblebrox is Donald Trump. Trump. Yeah. I and, thought exactly the same yeah. thing on my way here with the audiobook, <laughs> possibly even on that line. And, I, and he's much more lovable and, and benevolent. Well, not so yes, benevolent, much more. He's, 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 he's no Trump, but in terms of like, he's basically a celebrity. He's an egotist and he's an idiot. And yet somehow he's become the president. It's, um, I thought that maybe it was just me and you that had happened on that <laughs> thought, but I actually Googled Zaphod Beeblebrock's Donald Trump, and uh, there's a Vice article about exactly the same <laughs> thing, so um, it, we're not the only ones that have thought it. But it's amazing how lovable he is, yeah. considering he is a massive jerk. <laughs> Massively. And yeah. he treats Arthur awfully sometimes. He's really kind of cold <laughs> and dismissive towards him, and he's all about the furtherance of the self. He's yeah, a complete narcissist. And yet he's quite vulnerable, because I love um, uh, how early on... Uh, Arthur completely knocks him uh, out of his stride by saying, yes, we've met. And he loses oh, his cool for a yes, moment. He does, hey. yeah. <laughs> uh, but again, it's back to that Orwell thing we were talking about earlier, about um, you could say that Douglas Adams predicted that somebody like Donald Trump could become president of America. <laughs> and again, it's not, it's not about being psychic. It might be about being a futurologist, whatever mm. that means. <laughs> but I think it's understanding society yes. and the sort of, you know, uh, the cult of personality and like even at, at that time celebrity sort of becoming a thing and and, and the media becoming a, you know the t- tabloids then being being the sort of embryonic version of the kind of media cult we have today and I think Douglas could see where that was heading yeah. and satirise that maybe with the character of Zaphod It's a shame he didn't sort of get the chance to Actually, I'm saying it's a shame he didn't get yeah. a chance to live out. I'm not sure happen. he'd want, like... want to have seen that. Yeah, yeah. but um, I, I know a lot of people criticise so long and thanks for all the fish, even though it was one of my favourites. But uh, well, my favourite, in fact. Uh, I think they criticised it because basically Zaphod and Trillian aren't really in it. Mm. But it's interesting, you know. It is very much, you know, Arthur's story or Ford and Arthur's story, and I think that sort of Zaphod and Trillian serve their purpose for picking them up. And, you know, as hitchhikers and ferrying them where they need to be. But they, they kind of, I'm not sure how integral they are to the story on a on a sort of structural level, on a mecha- mechanical level, if, if you know what I mean. I'm not sure how much, how needed they are later on. Because I know we've talked about Trillian not being the best character in the world. But on the one hand, she, you know, she is the other human. And she's there mm. sometimes to give a bit of context to Arthur or to help him understand something <laughs> She can word things in a way that he would understand them, whereas Ford or Zaphod would just say it in a way that's completely and is alien. capable of the empathy. That yeah, exactly. Ford or yeah. Zaphod wouldn't be. And 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 her pet mice, crucially. Uh, yes, yeah, that's, that's <laughs> or, or was she so. their pet human? <laughs> yeah. But before we wrap up, uh, talking about it being sort of Ford and Arthur's story, uh, I, I would ask you, uh, just off the top of your head, what's this book called? The book we're discussing on the podcast at the moment. Well, I thought it was called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, <laughs> but uh, I think you're going to prove me wrong. Well, not necessarily, but how would you stylize that? Um, Is Hitchhiker's one word or two words? Oh, interesting. I, Whenever I've typed it, I've put it as one word. Yeah, so. and would you put an apostrophe in it? Yes, I would put yeah. The Hitchhiker well, apostrophe the, S. The pan edition I've got, it's a commemorative edition, sort of with a recreation of the original cover. Uh, and it, this is stylized as hitch hyphen 
Hiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and there's no apostrophe mm. in, in Hiker's. Uh, but then on the title page, Oof, Hitchhiker's one word with an apostrophe. <laughs> and there seems to be no definitive answer as to what oh, this book is actually called. And even Douglas Adams himself is, is inconsistent with it, the way he stylizes it within the text, <laughs> different on the radio. And what I, what I started to find quite interesting was you can interpret it so many ways that uh, does does the title of the Douglas Adams novel refer to the fictional digital book The Hitchhiker's Guide to the ah. Galaxy in which case you could say maybe uh, it shouldn't have the apostrophe because it's a guide for hitchhikers collectively uh, or no, then the apostrophe would be after the S so. well, well oh yeah of course um, or uh, does it refer to is the, is the eponymous hitchhiker Arthur and is the guide, is he the hitchhiker and the guide the book? Mm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Mind-boggling. <laughs> and I, f- I think the fact that there's no consistency and the fact that possibly Douglas Adams himself didn't even know just kind of sums up how bumblingly charming <laughs> this book and this franchise is. And it's all about that, that, that feeling of kind of perpetual bemusement and confusion and alienation. And they like, say it's a lonely book and yet it's never ever lacking in warmth or heart or humour and I just think that's why it's it's so beloved and wonderful and I think we should only discuss books that are bumbling and full of warmth and love and humour from now on I might be doing next month's episode on my own in uh, that case right okay well, <laughs> oh, what have I signed up for <laughs> well when we leave uh, Marvin and Ford and Arthur and Trillian and Zaphod they're en route to the restaurant at the end of the universe. And we're going with them, right, aren't we? No, we're going to Nazi Germany ah. to read The Book Thief by Marcus Zusak. Well, uh, I guess we'll see you next time. <laughs> yes, we'll see you next time. Or, you know, you'll hear us and we won't see you, but we'll imagine you're there. I mean, an imaginary audience. An imaginary audience is possibly the only audience we have. Let us know if you're out there. Make sure you're following us on Instagram and Twitter at Book at Breakfast for photos of breakfast and books. (laughs) And we'll see you next month to discuss The Book Thief.